It's Monday, September 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden is going all in on vaccine mandates. Much of his presidency hinges on getting the pandemic under control, and the administration sees these mandates as the path forward to getting back to normal. While some see these vaccine requirements as infringing on people's personal freedoms, many more seem to be in favor of the mandates and getting as many people vaccinated as possible. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for how the mandates play out politically and how time is ticking to get the Democrats' $3.5 trillion spending bill worked out. Next, Facebook knows that Instagram can be a problem for teen girls. According to their own internal research, 32% of teen girls say that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. While there are many social media platforms out there, some of these problems are worse on Instagram. TikTok focuses on video and performance. Snapchat keeps the focus on the face with filters, but Instagram centers on the body and lifestyle, making the social comparisons worse. Georgia Wells, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how Facebook has consistently played down the app's negative effects, despite research showing that it's been a problem. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Mississippi. Children are required to be vaccinated against measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, hepatitis B, polio, tetanus, and more. These are state requirements. But in the midst of a pandemic that has already taken over 660,000 lives, I propose requirement for COVID vaccines, and the governor of that state calls it, quote, a tyrannical type move. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about vaccine mandates. President Biden has gone big on these. He really sees this as the way to get us out of the pandemic. It's been getting a lot of pushback from Republicans mostly. People don't want the government infringing on their freedoms. If they don't want to get the vaccine, they shouldn't have to. But uh, so far, much of the Biden presidency hinges on this, you know, getting the pandemic under control. Um, so what is what is these, these effects of these mandates going to look like? Because they're hoping President Biden says he wants companies with more than 100 people, uh, employees to get vaccinated to or do a weekly test. So this is a big thing. But what is this going to mean for the future politically for Democrats and the president? There's no doubt when we look at polling that the public is really assessing Biden on how he's handling the pandemic. Afghanistan has happened. There was a slight dip, but really people want this pandemic to be over and feel like they elected him to get it over. And we can look to California to try to figure out how voters feel about mandates. The California recall that Gavin Newsom won in just a landslide really had become a race about COVID measures. Newsom made the case that if he lost, that Republicans were going to get rid of all of the mandates he had already put into place. They were going to have less vaccines, that the pandemic would come back. And Newsom won overwhelmingly. And we can also look at NBC's exit polls. And I found some really fascinating things in there about the pandemic, particularly people who voted to remove Newsom from office. This means people who did not like him. 30% of those people still agreed with his COVID mandates. So what that tells us is that 
even people who think that Democrats shouldn't be in charge are still in favor of much of this protection measures. And really, this tells me that Republicans are making a mistake when they're trying to appeal to voters by saying that there shouldn't be mandates. Right. I mean, all the public opinion polls I've seen uh, and even polls that happen on at workplaces and everything, a lot of them say they support mandates because they you know, want to protect themselves and, and ha- kind of have that peace of mind knowing that everybody's vaccinated and the chances that they could get sick are less. And, and you're right, you know, we're seeing a lot of Republicans say, you know, we shouldn't be doing this, we should respect people's freedoms, but that's just a minority of people, you know, uh, for the vast majority of Democrats and independent voters, they all agree with these types of things. We're seeing just really small numbers. Polling is telling us that really we're talking about 25% of the American public that's left that hasn't gotten vaccinated at least one dose. And what we're finding is that people who are willing to be vaccinated themselves also think that the rest of the public should be vaccinated. And so we're talking about an increasingly small minority of people that are opposed to this. And I think why we're seeing so much pressure from the White House. They know that we're talking about just a sliver of the population, one that probably doesn't carry much political risk for them, but they're tired of trying to convince (laughs) and now they're going to try to make do what they can to get rid of the virus. Over the weekend, there was a lot of concern over a rally that was going to be held uh, in support of those arrested on the January 6th Capitol riots. Nobody wanted a repeat of what happened in January, so there was plenty of stepped-up security and a huge police presence. In the end, it went off without a hitch. It was ended quietly, ended about 90 minutes after it all started. Some reporters said, you know, total, there was about 400 people there, and about half of those were probably journalists. So it didn't amount to too much. Yeah, you know, we see these things uh, in the past when there are big events like this, big protests. We saw it after Charlottesville. Every gathering afterwards drew a lot of police presence and a lot of media attention. And it ended up being more police and more media than actual protesters. Uh, We kind of expected that coming into this when online, the groups that would be sympathetic to this type of event had become concerned that police were just using it, staging this event to catch people who were at the January 6th rally and had not yet been arrested using facial recognition software. So whether or not that was true, we don't know, but uh, it seems to have kept the crowds away and kept the, the, the protest crowd pretty small. Finally, for this week, I just wanted to talk about the Democrats still working on the Build Back Better Act. This is the $3.5 trillion spending bill that they're working on. That's also faced a lot of pushback from Republicans, definitely, but even from Democrats. You know, one of the things that they're working on right now is... They're looking at a future ahead when the Democrats probably won't control Congress and what to do with this bill. So a lot of the provisions in this are going to be have expiration dates, timelines for renewal, things like that. We're looking at child tax credits, fixing the Affordable Care Act or expanding Medicare. These are all the things that they're still wrestling with. That's right. I mean, we're really looking at the last chance Democrats have to do lawmaking before they possibly lose control of Congress in the midterm elections. Once we get to January, Congress tends to be more focused on running than on actual lawmaking. So the window is closing and they're worried that Republicans will take at least one chamber in those 2022 elections. There's also sort of another self-imposed deadline. 
members of the House, moderates and, and progressives, has sort of struck this deal where they said that they would pass the infrastructure bill that already passed the Senate by the 27th. And that to do so, they needed this $3.5 trillion bill to also be done in order to get all of the support. So we're really at the last minute and we're starting to see some of the pieces run into trouble. There was votes against a Medicare drug negotiation pricing plan that might imperil that being included. And so they're trying to find a way to get everyone happy and everyone on board and all of the pieces in uh, pretty quickly. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thirty-two percent of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Or another one is, we make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. And this was a slide summarizing research of teen girls who had experienced these issues. Joining us now is Georgia Wells, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Georgia. Hey, thanks for having me. You and your colleagues there at The Journal have another great investigation looking into Facebook and Instagram More specifically, they have some pretty in-depth research that shows that there's a significant impact on the mental health of teen girls that are on Instagram. And, you know, it doesn't make them feel good about their body image a lot of times, Uh, you know, going through the app and seeing constant images of uh, perfect bodies and, and perfect lifestyles and everything really does have an impact on a lot of them. And as I mentioned, their own internal research acknowledges all of that, but it goes contrary to what they do say a lot in public and how they acknowledge what's going on and the impact of social media there. So, Georgia, start us off. What are we seeing? What is Facebook realizing about how Instagram impacts teen girls? So for the past three years, Facebook has been conducting studies into how Instagram affects users and repeatedly these Instagram researchers have found that Instagram is harmful for a sizable percentage of them, most notably teen girls, which you mentioned. Like, for example, a quote from one of the documents is 32 percent of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Or another one is we make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. And this was a slide summarizing research of teen girls who had experienced these issues. So their findings are clearly quite stark. Yeah. And those quotes that you're saying are are they're taken from slides, from actual research presentations that they are showing to people internally at Facebook. Facebook has researchers on staff who specialize in how to run these both qualitative and quantitative studies. And they've conducted these. And what we're looking at is documents from when they were sharing their findings internally with their own colleagues. Now, one of the things to get off of the table real quick before we get started, and a lot of this, as I mentioned, is coming from this research. You'll say, well, okay, Instagram isn't culpable in all of this. You know, there's a lot of other social media platforms out there. TikTok is very popular with the younger crowd right now. Snapchat, all this stuff. But a lot of this stuff is specific to Instagram because of the way all the platforms play out. TikTok is uh, is mostly videos. So it's performance-based, and Instagram is very specific photos. So uh, explain that a little bit. Specifically, the mechanism by which kind of a lot of these teen girls appear to be affected is this thing called negative social comparison. And that's this dynamic where if someone's kind of scrolling through an app and looking at other users, rather than just kind of this uh, kind of stance of like, oh, I'm learning about other people and what they're up to, they tend to approach it from the stance of 
well, how do I stack up next to these other people in terms of beauty or wealth or success or, you know, their beautiful families or relationships or whatever. And in the research, the researchers say that they've found that this issue of negative social comparison is worse on Instagram than other platforms. So specifically on TikTok, users are sheltered in some part because so much of the content on TikTok is performance-based. It's not taken to mean real life. And on Snapchat, people often use, like, A, it focuses on the face, but also people often use these filters that tend to be more fun or, like, playful than beautifying, like, you know, like, turn your face into that of, like, a puppy dog or something. The reason all this matters that in their documents they say literally social comparison is worse on Instagram than the other platforms is in the past when I've spoken with executives at Facebook about like, hey, how does your platform affect teen mental health? Often the response has been couched in this, con- in this language that they've used around like, hey, it's not just a Facebook problem. This is like a social media problem. And here we're seeing literally internally they're saying, oh, no, it's worse on our platform. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're starting to see some of this research internally from Facebook about their product, Instagram, in public, though. When Mark Zuckerberg and other officials are talking about Facebook, uh, I'm sorry, when they're talking about Instagram, what are they saying when it comes to these issues of mental health? This past March, if you recall, there was a hearing on Capitol Hill, and Mark Zuckerberg was called along with the CEOs of other companies to talk about their platforms in general. And one of the questions that one of the senators asked Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg was about like children and mental health. And his response at the time was, quote, the research that we've seen is that using social apps to connect with other people can have positive mental health benefits, end quote. So, yes, technically. That's pretty broad right there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, right, exactly. Like, sure, that's a technical truth, right? Yeah, I don't think anyone's disputing. (laughs) If you put it it in the context of people being lonely, needing some friends and reaching out to others – yeah, maybe social media and Instagram can be very beneficial in that way. But, you know, when it comes to these specific things of mental health and body issues, you know, the evidence points to the contrary. Throughout the course of all of this reporting, Facebook's research on Instagram seems to represent one of the clearest gaps we've ever seen kind of between Facebook's understanding of itself and the public position that they're taking. And Mark Zuckerberg's quote, I think, is a really strong example of that. And, and they know, you know, they were losing a lot of younger users on Facebook and Instagram came up, was already kind of a hit when they purchased Instagram. And they saw that as as the future for them, a, a way to really still connect with younger people and keep growing the platform there. So, you know, the follow through for them has not been there. You know, they, they're seeing these problems pop up, but they're doing little to address it. it, it it's tough, right? You, you want to keep uh, as many people on the platform while trying to address some of these issues. Facebook's own data now show that, like, Instagram is toxic for many teenage girls, but expanding their user base of these young users is really vital to their more than, like, $100 billion in annual revenue, and they don't want to jeopardize their engagement with the platform. How do they conduct some of this research? Because they're doing a lot of stuff, focus groups, I mean, connecting with people uh, directly on the app. So just for the purposes of, you know, bolstering their own research, right, how do they conduct a lot of this? Yeah, they do focus groups, like you mentioned. In the past couple of years, they started doing these really huge, like large scale surveys of tens of thousands. And in one case that I'm aware of, more than 100,000 users from around the world. And then what they'll do is they'll compare these users' responses with the logs of what these users actually did or viewed on Instagram. It's really powerful research and data in terms of just 
kind of this like quest for people around the world to learn more about how these platforms affect people. Because in the past, outside researchers, even if they've wanted to do this kind of thing, they haven't had access to this kind of data. It's really powerful research. So some of this research obviously points in this negative direction. To be fair, some of the research also says that it isn't harmful for all users. Some teenagers can you know, avoid this kind of negative social comparison that they can manage it at least and, and see it for what it's worth. Also, like negative social comparison, it's not new. Like it's been around forever. You know, when I was a kid, there was a lot of concern about what Photoshop in like fashion magazines, how that would affect young people. But now what's new is the amount of time young people, especially teen girls, are spending on these platforms and kind of the rabbit hole behavior of just like just getting sucked in and having a hard time leaving it and feeling like they're going to miss out from their friends if they put it down. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and to to the next point, you and your colleagues spoke to a number of, of teenage girls who use Instagram. They go to it often. They said they don't want it to necessarily go away, but they do acknowledge some of this stuff. And, and even during the isolation of the pandemic, you know, this is what they went to to connect with people. Yeah, some of the teens actually likened social media and Instagram to food, where it's like, you know, you can't live without food, but it's, you know, moderation is this incredibly important skill that often people don't learn naturally. Like often people need to be taught it. And there's a lot of like education. I think a lot of young people could benefit from about how to kind of safely and healthily use these sorts of apps. So what is Facebook and Instagram doing to remedy some of these things? Because as we mentioned, you know, publicly, they're not necessarily acknowledging a lot of their own internal research, but they are doing certain things. I remember, you know, uh, some time back they were trying to uh, play around with removing the likes or the counts of likes that you get on pictures, things like that. And I guess somebody else had suggested in, in internally, let's give people less of celebrities and lifestyles and more uh, people closely associated with users. The removing the like count is kind of a head scratcher because what happened was they heard from teens over and over again that the like counts caused this anxiety and pressure for them around posting. And so they experimented with removing the like counts, and they found it didn't actually seem to improve user happiness when they removed the like counts. So they did roll out the option for users to remove like counts on their accounts. Earlier this month, we spoke with Adam Masseri. He's the head of Instagram about kind of what they're working on. And he cautions that he doesn't think that there are any silver bullets to really fix this easily. But he's cautiously optimistic about some work they're doing to Kind of show nudges to users who might be going down dangerous paths of content to try and like kind of steer them back to healthier content and also potentially nudges around like reminding users to take breaks. And so he said it was too early to tell what kind of impacts they have, but those are two that I think would be really worth, you know, people keeping an eye on. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's, you know, these social media platforms, you know, when they gain popularity and start growing in users, obviously on a business standpoint, that's exactly what you want, but they become these behemoths and affect people in so many different ways. That's when it's really difficult to start controlling those aspects. And, and yeah, for the company, they have to look for these little nudges. Uh, They mentioned also in internal documents, they suggested maybe Instagram could uh, throw in more fun filters, kind of a la Snapchat, right? Turn your face into a puppy or something versus kind of these beautification filters. Yeah, exactly. So like things like that. Also, what you mentioned earlier around the reducing the like fashion type content, adding kind of boosting the amount of content viewers see from their close friends. But it's, the point's well taken. So Adam actually mentions that part of the concern when you're working on a platform at scale, like, like the size of Instagram, is that there's this concern that any changes you do can have 
unexpected consequences and unexpected other effects that you didn't anticipate. And so, like, point taken. Like, yeah, I get that it's a hard challenge, but it's, I think, right. I do think it's at a point where parents and teens are like, oh, my goodness, like, <laughs> what are you going to do about this? Georgia Wells, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.